0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Well, it is that time, tis the season, right? We're approaching what is known as the holiday season and a common refrain. During the holiday season is what you see on the screen behind me. Happy holidays, right? Happy holidays. Because we both want, uh, all of us want, people to enjoy their holidays. And there's something about holidays that make us think they're going to bring us some kind of joy. And if you're like me, uh, usually about the time November rolls around, I anticipate Thanksgiving at my life being something like a Norman Rockwell painting, you know, like... It's going to be beautiful and we're going to have a perfect turkey and everyone's going to sit peacefully around the table and then we'll gradually stroll right into christmas where there'll be you know peaceful shopping and um sipping coffee at starbucks together and children who are grateful and it's just going to be smooth right and then we move right into new year's where it's super fun and exciting and We kind of have a New Year's Eve like, uh, you know, Ross and um, Monica where they celebrate in by being super excited about it. You guys don't get the Friends reference? Okay, never mind, never mind. And we walk in the New Year sort of like the trifecta, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and we're ready to start a new year better than ever. Boy, the holidays just kind of bring this out in us and makes us exciting. But what usually happens, if uh, you're anything like me... If somebody brings up politics at Thanksgiving and then it ends up looking like this. And then Lisa's at home, Amazon priming everything on December 22nd to get there within two days because we're shopping online and we're, you know, stressed about how much money it costs to buy presents for third cousins who we're in some gift exchange with that we don't even know. And just got, you know, the list is huge, right? And then we, if you're like me, on New Year's Eve, um, I go to... The microwave, don't tell my kids this, so plug your ears, kids. At 9.30, we change the clock to 11.58, and we bring them to the microwave, and we count down. And by 10 o'clock, we're asleep, you know? It's wonderful. I, I just say we're celebrating New Year's with London, and uh, we're good to go. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I really do hope you have a nice holiday season, uh, however much you celebrate it or don't celebrate it. No problem at all. I just hope that you have a nice season this year. My point is that what we're often sold during the holiday season is a season of happiness that ends up being a season of stress and frustration, fatigue, and even loneliness for some people. Really difficult. And I want to use this time, the end of November and end of December, to finish the year talking about where Jesus taught us about happiness, the Beatitudes. That's actually the Latin word for happy, Beatitudes. And that's what Jesus really meant when he said, blessed are the fill in the blank. What he really was saying was, happy is the person who understands this, who understands this. Happy is the person who lives this way. And his insight, as typical for Jesus is a little bit counterintuitive. It's not what you would expect for what we think it means to be a happy person. So Jesus has some insight for us, some wisdom for us. And I want to start by saying this, that the Beatitudes are not what you do to earn a happy life from God. As if you've got some agenda about what will make you happy, and you've got to suffer through the Beatitudes... So that then God will bless you with a happy life. That's not how it works. The Beatitudes are the happy life. Meaning practicing the Beatitudes. Living in their truth. Obeying them. Living in the way that they describe life to be lived is actually what makes you a happy person. So, however your holiday season goes or whether it's the holidays or not, if you live the beatitudes, you will be as Jesus said, a blessed or happy person. I want to start this morning with the first two because they actually go hand in hand. The beatitudes are written sort of like poetry. They're book-ended. The beginning and the end start with a guaranteed promise. There's is the kingdom of heaven And then the middle ones have a future promise there. You shall be comforted or you shall inherit the earth or you shall be satisfied. But the beginning and the end have a certainty. You are in the kingdom with this particular blessing. And they go hand in hand. And what they're going to form this morning, the ones that Donovan read for us, poor in spirit and mourning, is what we're going to call godly humility. Godly humility. Humility is the very first key to unlocking real godly happiness. And it's tough. For several reasons, humility is tough. I mean, just in general, sin makes us proud people. The root of all sin is pride, self-exaltation. So practicing humility is very difficult for us. But along the same lines, there's a lot of false sort of fool's gold humility that exists in the world. And we've got to navigate around those to make sure we land in the right kind of humility, godly humility, to make sure we have godly blessing. Let's start this morning first with some of the principles of what humility really is seen in these two beatitudes. These principles are key, as I said, because there's a lot of counterfeit humility that exists, and we've got to be very careful. True humility comes when we see these two things come alive in the text, when these two things are true. And the first one is this, that there's an awareness of reality. You're not going to have real humility until you have a real awareness of reality. That's why Jesus started at the very beginning, he says, blessed are The poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Who are these people? Well, in short, it's every single human being. The reality of it is every single human being. Much like the story that Todd told us this morning at the communion table, um, we are like that puppy, that dog that's out in the middle of that pond, unable to save ourselves. That is the reality of every human being poor in spirit. But there's something more to this. You see, Jesus uses a financial term to drive home a spiritual reality. This is not a financial thing. This is not saying, this is not some sort of Hallmark card like, hey, if you're poor, you're really rich. He's not really flipping the script that way. What he's using is a financial term to drive home something that's true about our spirit. He uses the word poor, which just means this idea of being an absolute beggar, destitute, having no resources whatsoever. This isn't just like a little bit poor, you know, like when I grew up and white bread was the hot dog bun, the hamburger bun, the grilled cheese bread, you know, garlic bread, you know, like we just don't have. That's not the kind of poverty he's talking about here. He's talking about destitute. At your last breath, nothing left, nowhere to turn, poverty. And he says this kind of poverty is poverty in our spirit, which means just in our relation to God and how we relate to God in light of who God is and in how we are connected to him. This poverty of spirit, our reality is as first created beings, you and I are in complete dependency upon the greatness of god meaning the breath that i'm taking right now happens because god permits it to be so my heart beats not because i garner up enough strength in the morning to say you know what i'm gonna make my heart beat all day today i don't care what happens to me i don't care who comes i don't care what god does i've built up enough strength to make my own heart beat." it doesn't work that way it's beating right now because god permits it to be so As my creator, I am completely dependent upon God's power to live. Our reality also, not just as created beings, but also as sinful beings, is that we are in complete dependency upon God's mercy. There's this old sermon Called sinners in the hands of an angry God. Back in the mid 1700s, when they used to preach that way, we should probably think about preaching that way again. Where they, uh, the preacher describes um, you and I being like spiders hanging over a fire, and it's just by the two fingers of God that are keeping us above that fire. You know, trying to draw this image, and and the point was this: that we exist today in any sort sort of blessing or grace. By only the mercy of God. And the reality is we, we, we don't really taste that too often. See, I think we probably connect half blessing from God and half earning from us. You know what I mean? I, I think we sort of connect like, I've got good things in my life and I've got some good things going. And we, we sort of piece those two together as if, you know, God does a little bit for me. I appreciate the few showers of blessings he tosses my way, but I'm really where I am today because of what I've done. And the reality is, we are in complete dependency upon His mercy because you and I deserve immediate, consuming judgment from God. In light of His holiness, I stand no chance. So we need awareness of this reality. Real humility starts when you actually have an awareness of this reality, not 20% or 30%, but to the degree that you realize you are dependent upon God is the degree to which you can have full humility. Now, the second thing is this. It's not just an awareness of this reality, as if it's some intellectual or philosophical idea for us to talk about, like, yeah, I'm in dependence of some divine being. He says the second one for this reason, that you've also got to experience this reality. That's why he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now, this mourning is not just a generic mourning that is like, oh, when my heart is broken over the loss of someone that maybe I love, or some challenge or some difficulty. This mourning is not just the loss that any human experiences. This is a specific kind of mourning. What Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn, he says, uh, means this, blessed are those who grieve over their sin you see the promise of future comfort and blessing for those who mourn isn't just generic like if you have a heartbreak i promise it will get better because it doesn't always get better and it's not for all people but this mourning is actually for those who have sin and have grief over their sin so two questions for you number one does your sin bother you Let me give you like 10 seconds to not quickly just answer me. Think about it. Does your sin really bother you? Do you hate it? Do you not like it? Does it eat at you? Does it frustrate you? Or are you cold to it? Or indifferent? Or do you just not see your sin as really that big of a deal? I'm afraid sometimes we see sin as just this like divine parking ticket. You know, like, eh, kind of wish I didn't get that, but I don't know if I need to pay it. Are they really going to come after me? I actually didn't get my degree from a high university until two months later when I paid 139 dollars in parking tickets. <laughs> they wouldn't send it to me. <laughs> because at OU, you could get them and not pay them. You know, they just like you just get a ticket on your, eh, okay. And they, but they won't mail you your degree until you pay it. And I'm afraid sometimes <laughs> it's about what it costs 139 bucks to get. It's about what it's worth. And um, And I'm afraid sometimes we actually view our sin sort of like a divine parking ticket, when really, it's cosmic treason against the king of the world. It's, who it's, it's what it is. So second question is this: If sin does bother you, why does it bother you? Why does your sin bother you? Does your sin bother you because of the splendor and holiness of God, or does it bother you because it embarrasses you? Because sin that bothers you just because it embarrasses you will not produce humility. That is a fruit of pride, and it makes no difference in your life. If your sin bothers you because it makes you just embarrassed in front of other people, and it's not in light of the holiness or the greatness or the splendor of God, that's not humility. That's disappointment humility in light of yourself is just frustration with you not real humility humility that leads to real happiness that's what we're driving for is to be blessed people to be happy people humility that leads us to happiness comes from an awareness of God and his splendor you've got to start with him Let me give you a few examples. Abraham, when he was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, said, God, who am I to approach you to speak on behalf of these two cities? Behold, I'm just dust before you, God. Solomon, when he was beginning his reign, said to God, I'm just a child. I don't know what to do. Give me wisdom. I don't have any answers. John the Baptist, when he was in his ministry, said, I must decrease. He must increase. Peter, on the boat, when he caught the fish after Jesus told him to put the net on the other side, brings the fish up. The boat starts to sink. Peter sees what his life is and who Jesus is. And he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. In light of greatness of God, these men saw that they are poor in spirit and they experienced it. Being poor in spirit is the awareness of your powerlessness apart from God your helplessness and dependency upon him, our unworthiness before him. And if there is to be any life, any joy, any usefulness in this world, it is because of his grace and his grace alone. And if you start there, you'll build real humility. But we've got a problem. Humility's got some problems to it. We've got a problem with humility because, first of all, it goes against our culture. Our culture right now does not exemplify or lift up humility as something that we should pursue. We live in a self-affirming, self-exalting, self-centered culture. A culture that tells you to find your true self by looking in further and further and further to find that real gem of who you are and then bring that real self of who you are all the way to the surface and press that upon the world. To find inside yourself and to live that out is the answer of the world And it goes in complete contrast. The answer to poor in spirit from the world is to increase self-esteem. Now here's the problem with that theory. You will eventually run out of esteem that you build yourself. Do you know that? You don't have enough steam in your engine to get enough esteem to overcome the guilt and the shame of your sin. So if you rely upon self, esteeming self, you'll eventually realize that you're the one patting yourself on the back, and all of a sudden you'll look at your hand and say, if I stop, maybe my back stops getting patted and I stop feeling okay. And it falls apart on itself. The problem with humility is that it goes against our culture, but it also goes against your nature. It's not natural for us. As I mentioned before, the seed of all sin is... Pride is self-exaltation. Sin makes us hostile towards the supremacy of God in our lives. Sin makes you combative and defensive towards people who would try to correct you. I can't be wrong. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You've got sin in your life. Sin makes us judgmental of those who who we think are doing worse than us. Because what we want to do because we feel low about ourselves. Is judge somebody doing worse than me. So that I feel better about myself. Do you see? Pride goes against our very nature of sin. And it's trying all of these things. What they're trying to do is survive the destruction of sin on your soul. Sin eats your soul up. It tears you up. It kills you. Literally as Paul said the wages of sin is death. And to survive that sin, Satan whispers to us, use pride. But he doesn't tell you to use pride. He says, be defensive. Who do they think they are? Be judgmental. Look how bad they're doing. And he says, who is God that he's going to tell you what to do? Do You see how that doesn't work? If not for the grace of God, you and I will believe our culture and we'll even believe ourselves and live in pride and not humility. Let me get to the power of humility, the third part. The really thing that's going to make the difference Because the question you might be asking, which I think is a fair question, is how does real, genuine humility make me happy? If I have to acknowledge that I have failed before God, that I am completely dependent upon Him, that sounds like weakness, that sounds like slavery, that sounds like bondage. How does humility actually give me happiness? Well, let me try to show you. True humility is the pathway into, first of all, immediate connection now look at the uh, verse three he says blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs not will be future tense but theirs is the kingdom of heaven true humility is the pathway into the kingdom right away immediately in fact without humility you can't enter the kingdom because here's the deal to enter into the kingdom, to become a Christian, to be saved, means that you have to replace the current throne in your life with God. The current throne is you. You run your own life. You rule your own life. You think you've got things figured out. And you try to exalt yourself. And to become a Christian means to take yourself off the throne of your heart and let God have his rightful place again. That's what it means to become a Christian. And you and I are in competition with that. But when you become a Christian, with true humility, you enter into the kingdom and you have this um, blessing. It sounds kind of strange. How does poverty of spirit make us members of the kingdom? Well, as I mentioned, you stop being king of your world. And as long as he is king in your life, you are not. As long as you are king, he is not. It's that simple. But the question then is this. How does God being king in my life make me happy? How does that work? Sure, you've got to give up the power, but you also, listen to this. When you let God be king in your life, when you enter into humility and you become part of the kingdom, yeah, you give up the power, I'm going to run my own life, but you also give up the responsibility of being king. You see, people in this world are going crazy. Trying to handle the responsibility of being God in their life when they can't do it. Let me show you how. You give up the responsibility of being defensive all the time. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to defend yourself against accusers because you have a king that steps in front of you and fights the battle for you. Do you see how that works? How many of you spend all day receiving attacks and defending yourself against attacks? Sometimes they're not even coming at you. You just go grab them and make them about you. But you're always like defending yourself, protecting yourself, fighting with people in your mind. When you let God be king, you release that responsibility. You don't have to do it anymore. He's the one that goes and fights the battle. Remember the story of David and Goliath? You know who you are in that story? We get this wrong all the time. We think we're David and we go get stones and we beat our giants and we have a victorious life. That's not how the story goes. You and I are the Israelites, scared to death on the sidelines. Jesus as David, steps in, kills Goliath, and says, you get to enjoy my victory. You understand? You release that defensiveness. How about judgment? When God becomes king, you no longer have to sit on the throne and decide who's right and wrong. We're bad at it. We don't know how much people should be judged, how much they should be punished, what their intent was. We can't figure it out, and you waste so much of your time trying to figure out people's intent, you can't do it when he's king you get to release it let me get to the real one that we're struggling with you get to release worry fear and anxiety you know what worry fear and anxiety are you wishing you were god and realizing you're not you have no power to control the outcome of tomorrow you don't have it you have no ability to control How things are all going to go tomorrow. You can control yourself. You can bring yourself under the uh, control of the spirit and let God lead you. But you have no control over dictating outcomes of other people tomorrow. You can't do it. And you're burning up so much time, energy, and resources of your life, your emotions, over trying to control things that you can't control. So when you have poverty of spirit, recognizing your dependence among God, Letting him be king, you release not only the power, but the responsibility of being God. That leads you into the first part of happiness. And some people in here will go to their grave holding on to their pride, thinking they have power, control, and freedom, when in reality, you have weakness and slavery. That's all you have. Let me give you the last one. It not only gives you immediate connection in the kingdom with the king, but it also gives you future comfort verse 4 says this blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted now just for a moment imagine if this reality is true imagine if this is true that if real repentance and real confession real acknowledgement to the god of heaven that i need you is met with comfort and not condemnation imagine how much that changes everything Everything changes. We're so afraid to confess to God because what we think is on the other side of that confession is condemnation, consequence, and judgment. When in reality, Jesus says on the other side of that confession is comfort. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He gives us this because of his sacrifice for us. And what he's saying is you no longer have to fear confessing when you've done something wrong. You get to give that up because in Jesus Christ you can be forgiven. You no longer have to resent those who have done you wrong. Because all sin has been paid for and retribution will come. You no longer have to fear being exposed to your peers. And present yourself with some airbrushed version of you which is not real. You don't have to fear that anymore because sin has been judged and you have been forgiven and you can live free with God. You are finally free when you realize mourning over your sin and confession leads you into Christ because you can now apologize. You can now forgive, you can now ask for help. You can now take advice. You can now you now don't have to answer every attack or solve every problem. You are finally free. From all these burdens you're carrying. And you know what free people are? Really, really happy. This kind of freedom does not come cheap or easy. And the greatest place for you to see this, to get this kind of humility, which is honesty about yourself and comfort from God. Honesty about you and comfort from God. The best place to see this is the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the most unbelievable event in human history because God in His infinite wisdom could judge sin and forgive sinners in one moment, in one event. At the cross of Jesus Christ, the sinless, perfect Son of God said, I will carry the burden, the weight of all of their failings. And I will go to the cross and I will die for them. So at the cross, God being a just and holy God said, I will punish... All the sin that you and I deserve. And he did. And in the very same moment said, I will forgive sinners who come to Jesus. So when you are poor in spirit and mourn over your sin and walk through confession or repentance into humility to own who you are, on the other side of that is the comfort from God himself to say, you're mine and that's all you have to be. That's real happiness. And if you get that, you might actually become a happy person during this season, but you've got to come to Jesus, see him for who he is, receive him and let him change you. Let's stand and sing. If you need help, you can come.